Welcome to Accessible Art History, the podcast, the best place for art history lovers or anyone that is curious. My name is Annalisa, and I'm going to be sharing an amazing archaeological discovery with you today. Just a quick reminder before the episode starts, all sources and images will be posted on the Accessible Art History blog. You can find the link in the episode description as well as on Instagram at accessible.art.history. Now that we have that out of the way, let's get started. In this week's episode, I'm discussing one of the most important artifacts in Egyptology, Upon first glance, it's quite unassuming. A 44.2 inch by 29.8 inch by 11.2 inch black stone filled with lines of text that's broken off at the top. I, of course, am talking about the Rosetta Stone. Discovered in July 1799 by French officer Pierre-Francois Bouchard, this artifact was the key to unlocking hieroglyphic text, a script whose meaning was lost for thousands of years. This archaeological marvel kicked off a linguistic battle and a conversation about where artifacts belong. So to learn more, keep on listening. Oh, and one last thing. Thank you to listener Kayla for sponsoring this episode. Before we get started on the story, however, I think that it's important that I describe the stone. And as always, you can find images over on the blog linked in the description box. As I mentioned in the introduction, this granodiorite stone stands at about 4 feet tall and 3 feet wide, or 1.3 meters tall and 1 meter wide. The top part of the rock has broken off, so archaeologists estimate that it would have been about 6 feet or 2 meters tall when it was whole. Inscribed on the front of the stone are 99 lines of text. Hieroglyphic, the priestly language, of 14 lines. 32 lines of Demotic, which was Egyptian script used for daily writing and Greek with 53 lines. This was the language of administration. Using these three languages, the engravers proclaimed the new divine cult of the recently enthroned pharaoh, Ptolemy V. This fairly standard decree may not have seemed like much in 196 BCE when it was erected, but 1800 years later, it would be the key to unlocking a mysterious civilization. Before Napoleon was the emperor of France, he was a young general. He dreamt of becoming as powerful as his personal hero, Alexander the Great. So he sought to conquer Egypt under the French flag. With his soldiers, Napoleon brought a group of 167 scholars called the Savants. Their job was to study ruins and provide reports to Napoleon and the scholars that stayed in Europe. Once the French army arrived, Napoleon addressed his troops by saying, quote, From the height of the pyramids, 40 centuries looked down upon us. He had no idea how right he was. On July 15, 1799, some soldiers were digging the foundations of an addition to a fort near the town of El Rashid, known as Rosetta in English. This town is north of Cairo by about 169 miles or 271 kilometers. For centuries, it had been tradition for stones to be reused in new building projects, so it wasn't surprising to find a proclamation stealing used to build an old wall. Lieutenant Pierre-Francois Bouchard recognized that it could be important, so he alerted General Jacques-Francois Menu. The stone was then transported to Cairo to be studied by the newly formed Egyptian Institute. Once the stone arrived in Cairo, scholars began to whisper excitedly. They assumed, and rightly so, that the same thing was written in three different languages. Greek was already well known in the Western world, but demotic and hieroglyphs weren't. When the discovery was announced to the public a few days later, the world was lit afire with the possibility of finally understanding the mysterious and beautiful world of ancient Egypt. Due to the nature and gravity of this discovery, it was clear that whoever broke the code would achieve international claim and renown. Thomas Young, an English scientist dubbed, quote, the last man who knew everything, was the first to make a breakthrough. Fascinatingly, he applied a concept from Chinese, a language he was familiar with. When writing a Western name, for example, Chinese authors would use symbols that mimic the sound of a syllable, even if the character itself meant something completely different. 
This sparked something in Young's mind. He knew that Ptolemy was a foreign name in the Egyptian language. It was actually Greek in origin. The first Ptolemy was a trusted general of Alexander the Great and ruled Egypt after the conqueror's untimely death. So he set out to look for the Greek word Ptolemy, which would give a hint to where the characters were in Demotic and Hieroglyphics. Eventually, he succeeded, and the race was officially on. Another major player in the translation race was Jean-Francois Champollion. In 1822, about three years after Young's breakthrough, the French linguistic scholar made a startling realization that would change how scholars were thinking about the hieroglyphic problem. Building off of Young's concept, Champollion realized that the Egyptian language was built on a combination of phonetic and ideographic symbols. This was the first language ever discovered that utilized this. Over the next 10 years, Champollion used to break down the Egyptian language using this idea from not only the text of the Rosetta Stone, but from copies of hieroglyphic texts that people exploring Egypt would send him or that he discovered himself. One example of this is how a picture of a vulture actually meant sun because the two words sounded the same. Sadly, Jean-Francois Champollion died young at the age of 41 in 1832. His book on ancient Egyptian grammar was published posthumously. It was absolutely revolutionary because it finally allowed scholars to read inscriptions and text once thought to be unreadable. Suddenly, all of the discoveries had tangible meaning. Due to his contribution to the field, Champollion has been dubbed the founder and father of Egyptology. And if you're curious about the full translation of the stone, I've linked it in the accompanying blog post. Next, we are going to examine what this meant with the global fascination with Egyptology. But first, let's take a quick break. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi there. My name is Annalisa, and I'm the founder of Accessible Art History. My goal is to bring art history content to anyone that is curious. All my platforms can be accessed for free, but there are ways that you can support the cause. If you enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a rate and review on your favorite platform. I also have a Patreon and a Buy Me A Coffee account set up if you feel inclined to support Accessible Art History monetarily. However, I will always work to bring content for free because I believe that education should be accessible for those who want and need it. Thank you for listening, and now let's get back to the episode. Alright, now that we're back, let's dive into the importance of the Rosetta Stone. As I mentioned earlier, finally being able to read hieroglyphics after thousands of years of ignorance was groundbreaking gave context, depth, breadth, and information on a culture that had long been lost. Napoleon's expedition set up a trend that historians have dubbed Egyptomania. Suddenly, everything ancient was in vogue again. We see this in art, architecture, literature, and more. It would occupy the global mind over the next few centuries. Countries from all over the world would send their best and brightest archaeologists to Egypt to find the next major discovery. 
During this time, tombs of the great pharaohs, buried cities, monuments, and more were uncovered from the sands of time. Some of the most famous discoveries include the tomb of Pharaoh Tutankhamun, the most intact tomb ever found, the tomb of Pharaoh Amenhotep II, which contained royal mummies from multiple generations, the town of Deir el-Medina, which told us about the people who built the Great Periods, and many more amazing things. Because of this discovery and the translation of the Rosetta Stone, Egyptologists, and the world, were able to put all of these discoveries into context, to understand what they meant, how society was thousands of years ago, and religion. It gave us all perspective on the trajectory of world history. Today, the Rosetta Stone is one of the key pieces at the center of the collection of the British Museum. But wasn't it discovered by the French? Well, in the early 19th century, France and Britain were constantly at odds. When Napoleon saw an opportunity to grow his domestic power, he snuck out of Egypt, leaving his own troops behind. The British sensed their chance and moved their forces into Egypt. Together with the Ottoman forces, they besieged Cairo. Eventually, the fighting ended and scholars Edward Daniel Clark and William Richard Hamilton arrived from England. They were astounded by the artifacts that had been uncovered by the French. It was far more than they had announced to the papers. In fact, Clark wrote that, quote, we found much more in their possession than was represented or even imagined. Obviously, these were great treasures, and the British and French fought over who had claim over the items. Note that nobody consulted the Ottoman or Egyptian people. French scholar Etienne Geoffrey Saint-Hilaire told Clark and Hamilton that the French would rather burn all their discoveries than give them over, which is probably an allusion to the burning of the Library of Alexandria something that still sings my heart to this day. This next section gets a little bit murky. Somehow, the stone ended up on a British ship that was smuggled out of the country. There are no surviving records which tell us how, which isn't entirely surprising because it was stolen property. When the Rosetta Stone arrived in Portsmouth in February 1802, it was officially presented to King George III. War Secretary Lord Hobart represented the king and stated that it should be put in the collection of the British Museum. By June of that same year, it was. The Rosetta Stone has only left the museum on three occasions, twice during the two world wars and then in 1972 so that it could be displayed alongside Champollion's letter to the Louvre on Paris on the 150th anniversary of hieroglyphs being translated for the first time. Today, it is one of the most publicly visited objects in the museum and all conservation efforts are done with care to not take it away from view. An episode on the Rosetta Stone would not be complete without a discussion on the issue of repatriation. The British Museum has constantly come under criticism because the majority of its massive collection was attained through colonial force rather than legal or monetary. In July 2003, Zahi Hawass, then the Secretary General of Egypt's Supreme Council of Antiquities, made a formal request to the museum to have the Rosetta Stone returned to Egypt. He called it an icon of our Egyptian identity, which is quite true in my opinion. In 2005, he repeated the request and included a number of items from around the world, including the bust of Nefertiti in the Egyptian Museum of Berlin, a statue of the great pyramid architect Hemi Unu in the Romer und Peleza Museum in Haldenstein, Germany, the Dendera Temple Zodiac in the Louvre, and a bust of Ankhof in the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Major museums, including the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the British Museum, the Louvre, and the Pergamon Museum, did respond to this in 2002 by issuing a statement saying, quote, Objects acquired in earlier times must be viewed in the light of different sensitivities and values reflected of that earlier era, end quote. And, quote, that museums serve not just the citizens of one nation, but the people of every nation. Twenty years later, in my opinion, that doesn't seem to be a valid point anymore. 
Museums from around the world are starting to send artifacts and works back to their own country, and this is a trend that should continue. We, as art historians, should appreciate the art and the works that museums do every day, while still understanding the undertones of a colonial society and how it affects us even in our modern era. The Rosetta Stone is a fascinating stele that broke through the past to have a dramatic and important effect on the present. Without it, we wouldn't be able to understand the glorious wonders of ancient Egypt. This episode was actually inspired by the book that I'm currently reading. It's called The Writing of the Gods, The Race to Decode the Rosetta Stone, and was written by Edward Dolnick. I learned so much about the stone, the players, and the history of the artifact. I highly recommend it. I've linked it in the blog post if you're curious. Make sure to tune in next week when I discuss the discovery of the ancient and maybe mythological city of Troy. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Accessible Art History, the podcast. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at accessible.art.history and keep an eye out for the next episode. They drop every Monday on your favorite podcast platform. If you prefer to listen on YouTube, episodes will start being uploaded in a few weeks, so subscribe there too.